Welcome to Cloud Out Loud podcast with your hosts, John Gallagher and Logan Gallagher. Join these two skeptical enthusiasts, or are they enthusiastic skeptics, as they talk to each other about the cloud out loud. These two gents are determined to stay focused on being lazy and cheap as they evaluate what's going on in the cloud, how it affects their projects and company cultures, and sometimes how it affects the world outside of computing infrastructure. Please remember that the opinions expressed here are solely those of the participants and not those of any cloud provider, software vendor, or any other entity. As with everything in the software industry, your mileage may vary. Welcome back, everybody. So this cast topic is disaster. We here in the Pacific Northwest are on a slow-moving disaster of an enormous heat wave, which the rest of the world has been experiencing. But in the context of the cloud, there was a pretty famous outage about a week ago where the London data center for Google lost the capacity of a zone. So while some operations were still going, things like new compute engines and such weren't. So I think that's the first time heat, just heat, has caused outages. But over the history of public cloud, we've seen a lot of natural, with air quotes, disasters occur, and there's potential for so much more. In the context of Google, the largest zone, the largest region is Iowa. In terms of Amazon, the largest region is U.S. East, where I, when I was conducting classes in U.S. East, was pretty much the only zone people were using. I said, well, we run the disaster of possible thermonuclear war. But joking aside, there's so much that can affect us in the cloud, and so much of it is starting to build up speed. The global climate change, fuel, inflation prices. So we want to talk today about being defensive about this, about the process of guarding the systems that you have in place, the systems that you're building, and taking advantage of the cloud to to get around that. So Logan, set the context for us. Yeah. So with the London Data Center last week where they had the inability to cool off their data center and it caused degraded performance. That was probably not something that most people deploying into the London region would have anticipated. And the fact is that the next natural disaster that some region and whichever cloud platform encounters will likely not be an anticipated disaster. So building resiliency and having the ability to fail over to a different region or a different availability zone is going to be crucial. As you were saying, in the United States, in the continental United States, any region on the East Coast, there is going to be the potential for a hurricane to strike and to impact power or impact the, the buildings of the data center. In the middle of the country, it could be a tornado. And on the Pacific Rim, it's volcano, fire, earthquake, it runs the gamut. So having the ability to recover from those disasters, natural or otherwise, is going to be really important in the years going forward and in cases that we've already seen. Fukushima, when there's the disaster and the tsunami in Japan, caused enormous amount of people to have to move over compute capacity because of difficulty to get power in Japan. And we can anticipate these kind of natural disasters moving forward as well. The key that we want to, to set the context with here is the proper way to address these potential problems is be cloudy. That if you take a traditional data center approach, which is my machines are over there, and if I need more machines, I'm going to configure more machines over there. 
what we want you to do is take away the idea of there is mobile. And there may be constrained by your data governance, may be constrained by legal regulations, but even, let's say, HIPAA data here in the United States. It can't be exported outside the United States. You have to understand what it would take to move that data away from Oregon through Iowa into South Carolina, if necessary, if the worst case scenarios occur here in the Pacific Northwest and vice versa. So you have to develop an agility, not just in your software practice, but in your entire approach to your infrastructure. Yep. I think a major cloud provider gives you the ability to build distributed applications that are really fault tolerant and are really highly available. And to me, the first tools that come to mind that you can leverage right out of the box for the major cloud providers are things that allow you to do load balancing between regions. With Amazon, you could use Route 53 and set routing policies based on geo proximity to your end users, but also latency or also just weighted policies between two regions. What if you could potentially set up a weighted policy between US East 1 in Virginia and US East 2 in Ohio? With Google, you have the power of the global load balancer, which is an incredibly impressive tool that you can deploy extremely easily in Google Cloud that's unique to that cloud platform and would allow you to load balance between multiple different application targets. You could have clusters or instances running in regions across the whole continent, all load balanced by one IP address. So just to dive a little bit deeper on that, the global load balancer uses a single IP address no matter where you are in the world and then routes your traffic to whatever has least latency or based on rules that you give it. Behind the scenes, as with every other load balancer, it's conducting health checks. It will detect, for example, that services are degrading in one region and automatically route traffic to another region. And when that happens, you could tie things like Google Cloud Functions to it to increase the capacity of the managed instance groups or whatever you're running behind the load balancer. So you have to think about multiple geographic areas to diminish your risk, and you have to think about what the effect of that is going to be. If all my traffic has to roll out of US East 1 and roll into US East 2 or roll across the country to US West 1, do I have the capacity? Do I have the quotas? Do I have everything set up to do that? And that kind of leads to the heart of what we want to talk about today, which is talking about this stuff is great. Planning for it is great. Even architecting stuff. But how do we emulate this? Because as we were saying offline, if all you have is written out plans to do things, you've written out a prayer. That prayer consists of, oh dear God, please don't let this happen. Unless you've actually exercised this stuff and developed the talent set to manage it, you won't know if you're ready for these sorts of disasters. Yeah, many organizations have a disaster recovery policy on paper. Oftentimes, they were required to write one for whichever compliance regime their their organization falls under, whether it be HIPAA or some of the financial regulations. But if you have never tested out this disaster recovery policy, it's much the same as if you have database backups that you've never tried to restore from. You don't actually know if they're useful until you actually put this into practice. So I think we would really encourage folks to do a game day. Step one in the process of becoming more resilient and making sure that those policies you have on paper 
will actually work. Doing a game day to see what it will actually take to shift over your traffic and your applications from one region into another, and making sure that every time that the region property and all of your code has been parameterized correctly so that you actually can switch over from US East 1 to US West 2 is going to be really crucial. And game day can be a series of steps. It doesn't mean that you walk in on a Wednesday and say, well, we've lost the entire East Coast to a thermonuclear explosion. What do we do? And actually roll the software out. What you need to do is build up your knowledge base, build up your communication skills, build up your culture so that people will realize what roles they have in executing the disaster recovery plan. And then step one is pull the plan off the shelf, distribute the portions of the plan to the people who are going to execute it and see if they recognize any of the tasks that have been assigned to them and then work forward from that. Now, we are huge fans of automating this process. But again, let me emphasize step one is not jumping in with automation. Step one is developing the culture, developing the communication skills intramurally that you can execute this stuff. But as with every sport, you have that coach who stands up and says, well, you play the game the way you practice the game. And so what you need to build up to is the point where you're practicing disaster recovery, where you're practicing business continuity. And there are ways that the cloud and tools within the cloud can help you do that. And they originate with the cloud themselves. I think the poster boy, the poster company for putting these things into practice programmatically is going to be Netflix. And that's because Netflix cares deeply about being always up and always available to their customers Because their customers will quickly lose interest in the Netflix platform if they can't reach it. So they, as an organization, have invested heavily into being extremely resilient and adopting a discipline that has become to be known as chaos engineering, where they are deliberately injecting fault and injecting failure into their systems, both during the testing and dev stages of engineering, as well as in production to make sure that their applications are resilient and so that their end users can still watch Stranger Things. That is their end goal. That takes guts. You know, we all are willing to give lip services. Sure, I'll test to see if if there's a failover for the database. Sure, I'll ensure that my network plans will survive an outage of a router or something. But to actually do it in production while paying customers are attempting to get a hold of the latest street cuisine in South America. That takes, well, first of all, it is a culture that's been built on that sort of expectation, a culture that realizes the commitment and investment necessary to pull that off. And given the fact that they've trained, that they've made the commitment, they've invested in it, then they're willing to inject faults into production. You might say that's inviting trouble. Well, trouble is always going to come. The question is, Are you going to generate trouble and learn how to deal with it while you're awake? Or is it going to be 3 a.m. and you're trying to assemble your troubleshooting team via pager? Yep. So Netflix started out with a tool that they named Chaos Monkey. And Chaos Monkey would randomly shut off EC2 instances. This is when originally they were just on Amazon. They have now expanded to multiple cloud platforms. They would just randomly kill EC2 instances that their application that Netflix.com or a component of it was running on. To test that those pieces of the application could gracefully 
fail over to new instances and make sure that the app would still remain up. They eventually expanded this into a suite that they named Simeon Army that included some other tools such as Chaos Gorilla that could simulate a zonal outage, the outage of an availability zone, and eventually Chaos Kong that could simulate the outage of an entire region to test that their application could gracefully fail over to a whole new region. And these were automated tools that they would run frequently to ensure that they had the highest resilience possible. Murphy's Law, anything that can go wrong will go wrong, has that corollary of if it can go wrong and you don't know it can go wrong, you're going to guarantee that it goes wrong. So exploring the soft spots, exploring the areas of vulnerability or trying to reveal these areas of vulnerability is a real commitment. Backing off a second, you might say, well, that's an awful lot of risk for a business, but I can see why Netflix would invest in that because as things stand right now, if Netflix isn't available, you switch over to Apple, you switch over to Disney Plus or Hulu or something along those lines. So you've got this competition in the streaming sense that Netflix is ready for and created a resilient system to respond to. But you need to think about your own business. You know, if you have a website, how much of your business is conducted through the website? What happens if the website's not available? Do you have enough customer support people to man the 800 number? Do you have enough people to open mail? Do you have enough resilience? Do you have enough margin that you can accept the X percent of people who will be angered by not being able to get a hold of you at a critical time and drop you as a relationship, as a business. In looking at things like chaos engineering and looking at things like trying to build resiliency in the system, one of our arguments is that you can establish a budget for that. And that budget is, how long will it take you to rebuild your system from essentially scratch? And how much business will you lose during that period of time? That gives you a rough estimate of what your budget is for chaos engineering and for resilience engineering. So if you're stimulated, if you've been thinking about this, approach your boss with these numbers. Just say, look, if the website is down for six hours, we are going to lose X hundreds, X millions of dollars. So let's make a budget of 10% of that and explore resiliency, chaos engineering, and understand what happens when all of this stuff that is now increasingly becoming inevitable happens to our systems. Absolutely. And as you mentioned, another discipline that really cares deeply about this is site reliability engineering. In that discipline, there's a real emphasis on mean time to recovery and also instrumenting your applications with metrics to really know if they're healthy and if they're up and to ensure the resilience of your applications via monitoring. So you really know what's occurring with the parts of your website. And something that's almost worse than failure is not knowing if you failed or not. Sometimes in lectures, I'll be talking about chaos engineering and resilience engineering, and I'll talk about a green light and a red light. And I'll ask people, if you've got a green light on your console, what does that tell you? And people will say, well, you know, it depends on the software behind it. A green light on your console means that your green button is working. That's the only thing you can assume unless you've got metrics behind those that are saying, yes, indeed, we did a health check 10 seconds ago. We received these metrics of 15 seconds ago. A green button is a binary go, no go type situation. If you aren't capturing the instrumentation that Logan mentioned, 
If you aren't using that to feed into the system of monitoring, then all you know is whether your light bulb is working or not. So this feeds back into what I said before. If you are exploring chaos, resilience engineering, site reliability engineering, there's a budget, and that budget is what happens if the system isn't available. The corollary to that is what happens if we don't know if the system's available? You know, what if the links for our monitoring system all go down, but our website still is working? You know, how would we know whether to react to things? How do we know whether we need to fix the monitoring system or the website? These are the sorts of things you need to tear apart in your own architecture. Hopefully you've built them into the architecture, but most people haven't. You need to tear it apart and understand what happens if, in the case again of London, we are seeing degradation in the services. So maybe the systems we had running are running fine, but we can't add more capacity. Or if you're familiar with how heat affects computers, at a certain point, the heat is causing the computer to malfunction, is injecting errors into the data and such. So there's a degradation period where things are going wrong and possibly we're getting things like database corruption. So these are all factors that we have to feed into or we have to monitor and be aware of as we're trying to build our resilience engineering. One thing I think is interesting about the Netflix Seminar Me and Chaos Monkey tools is that they have evolved over the years. They were released probably publicly released around 2015. Since then, a lot of them have been, some parts of the suite have been deprecated, but a lot of pieces have been built into newer tools, such as their CICD platform. Netflix uses Spinnaker for continuous deployment. So a lot of the chaos engineering tools like Chaos Monkey and some of the other monkeys, Janitor Monkey being another one, now have been built into Spinnaker so that during their testing and release process, they are doing fault injection and they are really testing through the whole life cycle of a certain application version, making sure that it's resilient. And a whole other ecosystem of chaos engineering tools have sprung up. Another large one is called Gremlin. And additionally, a lot of newer tools such as Kubernetes service meshes like Istio have added fault injection as a feature of the tool. And additionally, now the cloud platforms have added fault injection tools to their suite of their myriad services. Uh, Amazon has released a tool called Fault Injection Service that will allow you to do things like kill an EC2 instance, similar to Chaos Monkey, but also they can do things like trigger an RDS instance failover to make sure that that multi-AZ instance you set up can successfully fail over to a new AZ. In the Google world, there on certain Google load balancers, there is now fault injection functionality. And additionally, their managed SQL service, Cloud SQL, has similar automated failover functionality. So you do have a tool set now that has evolved over the years, over probably experiences and probably blood, sweat, and tears that we now have the opportunity to leverage to make sure that our systems can stand up to random errors and EC2 instances or compute engine instances going down for all sorts of reasons. The irony of paying AWS to crash my EC2 instances or inject bad data when my users do it for free. There's some irony there. (laughs) Yes. Certainly. But as you said, What we need to do is get closer to integrating this resilience, this chaos engineering into the pipelines that actually deploy software 
because the same economics work with any other bug. It's that standard, if it costs you one unit to fix a bug in development, it'll cost you 10 units if QA has to find it and report it back to you. It can cost you infinite units if it ends up in production and loses you a customer. If you're learning about something via a customer phone call, which is unfortunately how many bugs are found still to this day. Yeah. That's an enormous amount of units of effort that's going to require to go all the way back to the development pipeline and push out a new version with a bug fix. So we're getting so much better at understanding the software engineering process and creating such great tools, you know, containerization, integrated development environments that allow us to run things all the way through the testing area, the code repositories. Now they are resilient enough that we need to extend them in the direction of breaking faults, of unusual data being injected because what, fiber optic cables are melting. The things are not going to get better in terms of the catastrophes that we face. Sorry about that. But assuming we survive them, we would like to remain employed at the end of them. And so that building systems that are resilient enough to either weather them or be restored quickly after them is going to become more and more important. Yeah, you know, I think you do hear some critics of the cloud bring up, well, hey, you know, Amazon goes down all the time. And I think that they're painting with a very broad brush there because an Amazon region may go down, but we have not ever seen every region in their global footprint ever go down. But the fact is that the biggest cloud proponents and some of the biggest cloud architects have never been shy about telling us that you will experience component failure. Werner Vogels, CTO of Amazon, has that famous phrase, everything fails all the time. And it is incumbent on us to build for that expectation. Now, I think that Amazon, Google, Microsoft have built some extremely robust platforms on which for us to build our applications. We get to benefit immensely from what they have built for us. But it is also on us to make sure that at our application layer, we're building for resilience. Yeah. When we were prepping for this, Logan reminded me of one of my favorite Simeon tools, which has now been folded into other stuff called Janitor Monkey. Or is it Configuration Monkey? The one it tracks. So whichever one it was, it would track to see if EC2 instances existed in an auto-scaling group. That would be Configuration, configuration Monkey. Configuration Monkey. Yep. So for free... You could start up an EC2 instance and have this wrapper, the auto-scaling group, whose only job was to ensure that this one thing stayed up or N things stayed up. But more often than not, you'd have people saying, oh, it's just one server. I'm not going to put it in an auto-scaling group. That's not cloudy. The cloudy thinking is, I need the functionality of this server. Otherwise, why am I running it? If I need the functionality, I'll put it into something that will ensure that if it crashes or the zone goes down or something overheats, the auto-scaling group's responsibility is automatically to move it some other place. Now, this is functionality that's been around for 12 years. And how many people are still starting up instances, EC2 instances, VMs in Azure, Compute Engine instances in Google, without putting it into the equivalent of this? Managed instance groups in Google, for example. It's free. So why not use it? Have this software that's monitoring your system and moves it in case anything untoward happens. That's the core of resilience engineering, deploying these tools, understanding what the hazards are, deploying the tools that will meet the hazards and do it automatically and inexpensively. 
We are lazy and cheap. Indeed. There's a through line here. <laughs> That's right. Resilience engineering is still a part of that. It will take you some effort, but most of the effort will be understanding what you've deployed and understanding the correct architectural approaches to make that more resilient. It could be something as simple as taking the virtual machines you're running on and moving in auto-scaling groups or managed instance groups, and boom, your job is done. It is resilient. Load balancing in there, and you're pretty good right there. Life is good then. Okay, so this was definitely a soapbox, if not even a pulpit, leading the cry to do resilience engineering. But the other through line that we hope you detect is that we want you to understand the cultural changes that need to happen, that people need to reflexively build these systems that are resilient and that are inexpensive. So with that, as we swelter here in the Pacific Northwest, we sincerely hope wherever you are is cooler and you are safe from natural hazards. And we'll see you again next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Cloud Out Loud podcast. Please let us know in comments if you caught either of the gents calling a product or technology by the wrong name. Other information and suggestions are welcome too. Or feel free to tweet us at at cloudoutloudpod or email us at cloudoutloud at ndhsw.com. We hope to see you again next week for another episode of Cloud Out Loud. Cloud Out Loud.